Not long ago, a study came out suggesting that Facebook might be making us miserable. Is that a shocker? And, uh, and basically, the study observes how people often feel more dejected after logging onto Facebook. That, that after looking at a bunch of happy pictures and bios that make people look awesome and positive status updates, people's moods were darkened because they believed that everybody else was happier than they were. You go on Facebook, and what do you see? Happy, shiny people with smiling faces and beautiful families. So we get on Facebook, and and what do we feel like when we see that? Like losers. We're we're looking at these status updates, and, and we're thinking, that's not my life. That's not my marriage. Uh, that's, uh, my kids aren't behaved as well as that. My teenagers aren't as academically accomplished as that. My marriage is not like that. But here's the thing. Nobody's going to take a picture of that fight that they had with their wife on the way to church and post it on social media. Uh, we all have a tendency to airbrush our social resume and project a certain image that we want others to see while leaving out the negative stuff. Now, it's sad when that happens on Facebook, but it's devastating when it happens in a church. But it happens every Sunday all across the country. We come to church, and we paint plastic smiles on our faces, and people ask us how we're doing, and we just act like everything is awesome, to quote the Lego movie. And we lie to one another. And we aren't honest about the anguish that's going on in our hearts and the turmoil that's going on in our souls and the struggles that we're dealing with. And churches, in part, have encouraged that kind of activity. Churches often work real hard to help people lie to one another, to to, to cultivate this this cheerful, upbeat, uber-positive vibe on Sunday mornings. Our worship songs tend to be upbeat and celebratory, and we tend to skip over passages like the ones that we read this morning. Psalm 88, or Jeremiah 20, or Job chapter 3. And people walk away from church feeling the same way they feel after logging off of Facebook. I'm not like this. I'm not like these people sitting around me. I'm struggling. I'm depressed. I'm despairing of life itself, and and I'm having a hard time finding hope. And something must be wrong with me, because obviously everybody else is doing fine. I'm not spiritual. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. This morning we come to Job chapter 3, one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. But as we walk with Job into this darkness, as we in our hearts weep with one who weeps, I hope that by the grace of God I can help you to see a few particles of light, a few glimmers of hope in the midst of Job's struggles, in the midst of this dark chapter, and that in turn you'll find encouragement and hope in your own sufferings. Now, last week we looked at chapters 1 and 2, and in the beginning, things are going great for Job, aren't they? He's a man of renown. He's a man of the, uh, the greatest man of the East. He's got a large family. He's got great wealth, and most importantly, he has great godliness. Job was a man of faith. Job was a man who deeply loved and trusted God. And we saw last time how the devil... The Satan, the accuser, comes to Job and accuses Job of being a fake, phony believer. He says the only reason Job serves God is because God gives him all these blessings, all this wealth, all these children. Is it any wonder that Job loves you, God? 
He really doesn't love you. He loves the stuff that you give him. You take all, take all that stuff away, and I guarantee you that he will curse God. And underneath that accusation is, is, a, is another more sinister accusation. Satan is not just accusing Job. He is accusing God. In essence, Satan challenges God's very worth and value. He is declaring that God is inadequate, which is why God has to buy Job's loyalty. And God allows Satan to afflict Job. And in quick succession, Job loses his wealth and possessions and children. And in chapter 2, he loses his health. He's covered with these, these painful, oozing, festering sores all over his body. But Job proves Satan wrong, and God writes. Because after all of this, Job does not curse God. Job does the exact opposite. He blesses God. He praises God. He worships God. He says at the end of chapter 1, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's exemplary. That's the kind of faith and trust that we ought to pray that God would give us. But that's not the whole story. I dare say most of us have at one time or another observed in others or even in our own life when tragedy strikes suddenly, when difficulty falls upon us, sometimes in that moment our initial response can be good. It can be strong and full of faith. But... What happens when the darkness does not lift and the pain goes on and on and on and on and hours turn into days that turn into weeks that turn into months later on? In the book of Job, Job gives us a hint at the length of his suffering. He talks about months. This is just going on and on with no end in sight. And, and, and when the darkness does not lift... After that initial moment, perhaps, of strong faith, it's not uncommon for us in those times uh, to to experience a weakening of resolve, uh, a weakening of faith, and, and deep discouragement and depression and even despair takes hold. It's exactly what happens to Job. He doesn't go from chapter 2 straight to chapter 42. And that's how most people who want to study Job or preach on Job, that's how they want to do it. They want to Jump all those other chapters in between and go right to chapter 42. But that's not how Job experienced it. Instead, Job must walk a long, hard road before he discovers what God has for him in his trial. And Job, after initially starting off so strong, is now wavering. Which leads me to my first reflection on our our scripture, which is the the loneliness of Job. The loneliness of Job. Of Job. Job, Job's suffering is coming from multiple fronts. He's lost his wealth and his kids and his health, but also he's now in a, in a state of extreme loneliness and rejection and isolation. Here is a man who was once respected and admired and well received. He tells us that later on as he's looking back on his, his old life. But where is he now? Well, look at verse, or chapter 2, verse 8. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Really where he's at is the community garbage dump. The local landfill. The town incinerator where the rubbish burned endlessly in a heap outside the city gate. That's why there are ashes there. 
And it's, a pla- it's places like this where the rejects go, the untouchables, the disease, the lowest of the low, and the, the poorest of the poor. The image of such a place is so horrifying that Jesus himself later on uses this as one of his most graphic illustrations for hell. As there was a place just outside of Jerusalem, the valley of the sons of Hinnom, better known to us as Gehenna, where the fires were constantly burning. And here, Job, who in the beginning of the book is, lives in a paradise-like state, has, in a sense now, descended into something like hell. He is rejected. He is alone. His wife has come and advised him to curse God and die. Now she's gone. But we read that these three friends of Job come, and perhaps now Job will finally find some relief. Chapter 2, verse 11 says that these friends have come to comfort Job. That, that Hebrew word for comfort conveys the idea of speaking words that bring encouragement. That was their initial intent, to speak life to Job. But what happens when they see Job? Verse 12, we see that they are shocked and horrified by Job's marred and disfigured appearance. He looks so bad they can't even recognize him. And in verse 13, we see that they are so horrified by Job's predicament that they are rendered speechless for a week. Now, often that silence of the friends is seen as commendable. It's often said that the silence of Job's friends was the best thing they did for him. That they really began to mess up when they opened their mouths. And then all wisdom left them. And certainly when our friends suffer, uh, we we don't want to rush in with glib answers. A, A time of quiet empathy can minister to the sufferer. But the silence of Job's friends goes on and on for days on end. And eventually, eventually to refuse to speak a word to a sufferer, to go seven days without a word is not comforting. It's eerie. As a matter of fact, we see elsewhere in the Bible and in the ancient world that seven days of silence was an expression of mourning for the dead. They are mourning for Job as if he's already gone. Is as if they sit by Job with the coffin open and they're just ready for him just to fall into it. That the silence uh, may not be a silence of sympathy as much as it is a silence of bankruptcy. They have nothing to say. It's too late for words. Job's as good as gone. It's as if there's this insurmountable gap between Job and his friends. They can't reach him where he's at and he can't come to where they are. And how utterly and terribly alone Job must have felt, sitting there outside the city amongst the smoke and the ashes with the the crackling of endless fires in the background. His children are no more. His wife is not there. His his friends who initially came to, to, to speak words of comfort, they say nothing and they treat him like a corpse. Later on, we'll see that Job laments over the fact that he used to be admired and respected, but that now that people despise him, people spit in his face, he is forsaken and betrayed by man, rejected and an outcast and utterly alone. It's bad enough to feel rejected by man, but to feel forsaken by God is the worst of all, which leads right into chapter 3 and the curses of Job. Now, this idea of cursing is a very important theme 
in the book of Job. This has already come up several times. In chapter 1, Job fears that his children have cursed God in their hearts. Satan argues that if God allows Job to suffer, Job will curse God. Satan makes that argument again in chapter 2. And also in chapter 2, Job's wife confronts him and tells him that in light of his suffering, the best thing he can do is curse God and die. And so as Job's suffering intensifies, as it continues on, that's the big question. Will Job give up on God? Will he abandon God? Will he curse God? And we are left hanging on the edge of our seats in verse 1 when the writer says, Job opened his mouth and cursed. What's he going to curse? Is Satan right? Is Job going to finally break down and curse God? Look at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job doesn't curse God, but he comes real close. He is cursing what God has done. Specifically, his giving of life to Job. Job wishes that 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 day where he was conceived would have been blotted out from the calendar. Look at verse 3. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Now there are allusions here to the uh, creation account in Genesis. When time began, darkness was everywhere. And in Genesis 1, how did creation begin? It began by God saying, let there be light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And and God saw that the light was good. In the scriptures, light is all about God. All about goodness and creation and order and life. But in his agony, what is Job doing? Job is wanting to reverse that. For a day to become night is to turn back creation, to see it undone. God said, let there be lights. Job, in verse 4, is saying, let that day be darkness. He, he says, may God above not seek it. That's another way of saying, may it be God forsaken. Let the day of my conception and my birth be ripped out of the calendar and destroyed. Look at verse 5. He says, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Not just darkness. But deep darkness. Later on, the book of Job uses this word to describe the darkness of a mind shaft. You know, that kind of darkness where if you put your hand in front of your face, you can't, you can't even see your hand. You've been in that kind of darkness before. He uses this word later on to describe the region of the dead. Again, we see a, a desire for a reversal of the good works of God. But Job's not done. If you think this is dark, he gets darker. Verse 8. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Job wishes that someone had the power and the authority to curse the day of conception. Someone who can rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan was a mythological god, a mythological sea creature, a a terrifying creature of chaos who in the ancient world and pagan mythology, was seen as the great enemy of the Creator whose whole mission was to turn back and undo the order and the beauty that God had made. Job imagines here professional curse makers, if you will, who have the power to call up this beast 
to rouse him and bring him up out, out of the deep darkness and destroy a part of creation, namely the day that Job was created. Job gives particularly chilling imagery in verse 9. He says, Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Job describes an endless night that will never lead into the day of his conception. Why? He says, Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. These things are tough to read, but we need to read this. We need to plumb the depths of Job's agony and live for a moment in this chapter. I think one one of the the takeaways here, uh, one one of the things that I think we, we need to realize is that Job's pain requires our careful attention. There's a temptation for us to skip chapter 3. There's a temptation to skip all the way to the end of the book where things turn around again for Job. Or if we don't skip it, we'll just skim it and, and, and avoid really engaging with it and wrestling with it. And that's natural. And we do this all the time. We watch the news. And we see a horrifying story featuring intense suffering and there are families wailing and crying. And often we feel an impulse to shut off the TV. Or change the channel because because it's too painful for us to engage with what we're looking at. But friends, Job chapter 3 is a part of God's word. God intended for this chapter and the next 39 painful, difficult chapters to be read, not ignored. God intends to teach us something through it. And and so we ought to listen very carefully and engage with Job's pain. We're going to see later on in this book. Actually, we'll start seeing it next week. That Job's friends don't listen very carefully. They don't engage with Job's pain. Matter of fact, we will see that they are quick to condemn Job, believing that God's punishing Job for some sort of sin. If you're a true believer, Job, bad things wouldn't be happening to you. But one of the points of the book of Job is that sometimes awful things do happen to real believers. And one of the reasons why Job chapter 3 is so important and so beneficial, and will help us to love and minister to other people and not make the mistakes of Job's friends, is that if we are prepared to listen to Job's pain here and not just skip over it, not just change the channel to a happier part of the Bible, it will help us to listen to our friends when they go through intense pain and suffering. Say, for instance, you have a friend who's experiencing intense pain suffering and pain, either physical or emotional or spiritual or all the above, and you realize, i got to go over and be with my friend. So you rush over to that person's house with anxiety in your heart because you have no idea what you're going to face when you visit your friend. You don't know what state your friend's going to be in, what, what torrent of sorrow and grief may flood over you during that visit. But if you've read Job chapter 3, you'll be prepared for the worst. You won't be shocked or taken aback if dark words come from your friend's mouth. If your friend says she wishes she'd never been born. You'll know that such such sentiments and such words can actually come out of the mouths of godly, mature, experienced believers because we see that Job struggles in the exact same way and he was the godliest man on the planet at that time. He was a holy man, a man full of wisdom, a man of God, a man of deep, serious faith. 
Your friend who's suffering may say that he feels like God is against him. Isn't that essentially what Job says here? Look, look down at uh, verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Now that's interesting language. Because in chapter 1, God is spoken of as one who has put a hedge around Job. But in that sense, it's a good thing. It refers to God's gracious protection. But here in Job 3, Job speaks of God's hedging him in in the sense that Job is feeling stifled by God. That the very life is being squeezed out of him. God now is in an antagonistic role. To to Job, God seems to be no longer his friend, no longer his helper. And your Christian friend who's going through extreme trauma may feel like Job. that, That God is no longer accessible that God has become an enemy. It's possible for real, godly, mature believers to have very dark moments like this. We need to listen carefully to the voice of grief. It's difficult, it's painful, but if we do, we'll be better equipped to love and support and comfort those who are going through suffering. Notice also in in chapter 3 the honesty of Job. The honesty of Job. He may be many things, but he's not a liar. Some Christians who are wrestling with their grief and depression and negative thoughts feel like they can't really tell the truth about how they're feeling. People, people in church are often afraid to bear their soul because other Christians have harshly judged them in the past or gave them the impression that, hey, you're a Christian. You aren't supposed to feel that way. Rejoice. And churches have promoted the, the, just the shallow, happy, clappy version of Christianity that papers over pain and sorrow. And so they feel guilty for feeling as they do, so they keep it all inside. And you have churches full of silent sufferers, faking smiles and pretending that everything is just perfect, and we end up not being honest with others or with God. But Job doesn't do that. Job's honest about what he's going through and the feelings that he is struggling with. Job's heart is in such turmoil and grief, he's at the point now where he wishes that he never existed. Now, in putting the spotlight on Job's honesty, let me just clarify, I'm not saying it's right to wish that you had never been born. And I'm not saying that it's right to think of God as your enemy, not if you're a real believer. But it is right to be honest about your struggles. Your grief and pain may drive you to dark thoughts, maybe even wrong-headed and sinful thoughts. But don't compound the sin by being fake Painting on a smile and pretending that everything is fine and fooling your friends when it's really not fine. Instead, find a godly, mature believer to help and support and love and encourage you and point you to the Lord. As we'll see next week in the book of Job, being careful about who you, who you share your pain with is highly advisable. Because the wrong counselors can hinder and not help you as you work through your pain. And if you're ever at the point of suicidal thoughts and the like... It is absolutely essential that you tell some other trusted people about this. If you have no one you can trust, I'm your pastor, talk to me. Or, you know, you're like, Deemer's the new guy, I don't know him. I'll talk to Pastor Steve. Uh, we'll get you some help and some, some hope. The book of Job shows us that even the godliest of believers can struggle with deep anguish in their soul and even despair. 
And we should not, as we'll see Job's friends do later on, cruelly cast stones at our hurting brothers and sisters. That's the quickest way to turn our church into a shallow and superficial church. If Harbin's isn't a place where someone cannot honestly express what is going on in their hearts, we will not be a place that provides healing. We need to be a place where someone can talk like Job and not fear that we will respond with harshness, but instead we'll, we'll encourage authenticity and honesty when folks are struggling. Because as difficult as it may be uh, to admit that you feel the way you do and as difficult as it may be for a friend to hear your pain... It is this kind of honesty that in the long run leads to healing. Honesty with our friends helps us to be honest with God. And when we're honest with God, we begin to put ourselves in a position where we can be strengthened by Him through our sorrows. Job's honesty, expressed in this lament in chapter 3, contains a whole lot of darkness. But in his transparency, we see little particles of light. It's not much, believe me, but it's there. Little seeds of hope that later on are going to persist and even grow as his trial continues. Hope that lays a foundation that God will build upon. Which leads me to reflect upon the hope of a suffering saint. The hope of a suffering saint. We do see this in Job 3. Now Job is a real believer. And that, my friends, is precisely why his suffering is all the more intense. If Job were an atheist... He would still be suffering and he still wouldn't like it. But if there was no God in the universe, there really is no logical reason for him to complain about his suffering or try to make sense of it because there would be no reason for it. It just happened. Too bad. Stinks to be you. But it is precisely because he believes in a God that is both all good and all sovereign that his emotional pain and distress is intensified. It is doubtful that Job is even conscious conscious of the presence of God in his life at this time. Job probably could have echoed the words of C.S. Lewis, who in his book, A Grief Observed, shares a glimpse of his personal reflection after the death of his wife. Lewis asks in his pain, where is God? And his answer is both sad and powerful. Lewis says, this is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy... So happy that you have no sense of needing him. So happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And yet, Job knows he can't turn away from that door. As Job is perplexed over these things, as he wrestles with God over these things, as he questions God through these things, in spite of all this, Job does not write God off. He doesn't give up on God. He doesn't say, well, forget this, I guess I'll try Buddhism. He doesn't become an atheist. 
If he did, he'd be doing exactly what Satan said he would do. But that's never an option for Job. As we read the book of Job, that becomes crystal clear. That's not an option for him. That's never a realistic solution for Job. Job feels like the door has been slammed and bolted, and yet Job stays at the door. And he will for the next 39 chapters. Job knows there is no other place to go. As dark and desperate as Job's lament is, it is actually full of God. For example, look at verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? Job hasn't become a Darwinist. He recognizes that light and life have been given to him. It's an implicit reference to God. Verse 23, which we already read, is an explicit reference to God where he says, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? If Job is right in verse 23 when he says that it is God who has hedged him in, then Job knows that it is God with whom he must deal with for help and relief and a solution. If God is the one who is sovereign over our suffering, then it is to God that we must all turn to in our greatest need and suffering. Job, who is beginning to have lots of questions and even doubts uh, about the, the actions of God, is nevertheless persistently clinging on to God. And that's only going to become more obvious as the book goes on. In fact, as you read through Job, you will see this persistent, stubborn clinging to God, this refusal to turn away from that locked door. That, that, that becomes one of the great themes of the book of Job. Job may wish for death, but he never kills himself. Job is not apathetic. On the contrary, despite Job's weakness, there is nevertheless this intense, restless energy in Job that goes on for 39 chapters. Job will not take his wife's counsel to curse God and die. Instead, he tenaciously pursues God and keeps pounding at that door because he knows that the solution lies with the Lord, not apart from him. Job knows that it is ultimately the answer for him in his trial. And it is ultimately the answer for you in your trial. Job's relentless quest for God, in spite of his suffering, is a glimmer of hope in this book. In chapter 3, it's just a glimmer. It takes a long time before we see anything more than a glimmer, but right now things are so bad that we need to take whatever we can get, right? And so I'll take that glimmer. One final encouragement for suffering saints. At the end of Job 3, we see a man who is terribly alone, sitting with friends who want to comfort him, but they have nothing to say who consider him as good as dead, who are appalled by his appearance and his disfigurement. Here we have a man who was once at the height of glory and respect, sitting now in the ash heap, despised and rejected. And it's tempting for all of us, in our moments of deepest sorrow, to lash out at God. Why are you doing this, God? This hurts. Don't you understand? Don't you get it, God? Don't you get it, Jesus, how painful this is? But when we consider suffering from a biblical perspective, we can never think of it apart from Christ. And we can never read and interpret the book of Job as if Christ never came. 
Jesus is the epitome of the innocent sufferer. He is the blameless believer par excellence, whose righteousness infinitely exceeds that of Job's. And Job's loneliness foreshadows a greater loneliness. Job's darkness anticipates a deeper darkness. The Scripture describes Jesus as a man despised and rejected. Jesus' closest friends abandoned him in his hour of great need. Indeed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' heart was burdened and weighed down, and he felt intense trouble in his heart, praying so intently to God that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And as with Job, the three friends who were with Jesus had no encouragement for Jesus either. They had not a word to say. Instead of praying with Jesus, they're sleeping. And when Jesus was arrested, his disciples scattered and left him alone. And yet Jesus is superior to Job in his suffering. Job's faith wavered. Job questioned God. Job felt like God had abandoned him and that that door was forever locked. But Jesus, unlike Job, embraces the will of the Father. Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He was submissive to the Father in suffering. Because unlike Job, Jesus perfectly trusted that God had a good plan and purpose even in the face of rejection, even in the face of being an outcast, as Jesus was sent outside the city, outside the camp, to the place of the skull to the place where the outcast and the rejects and the condemned are sent. Unlike Job, Jesus doesn't wish he never existed. In fact, Jesus recognizes that he exists. He he, he came to earth for this purpose to glorify the Father and to suffer. He submits to the Father's will and for the joy set before him endured the cross. If Job was disfigured, how much more so was Christ, who was beaten and bloodied? Prophet Isaiah says he was marred beyond human semblance, not even appearing to be a man. He was so disfigured. Job felt like he had been abandoned and forsaken and shut out from the presence of God. But the truth is that no righteous man, no real believer has ever really been forsaken by God except for Jesus. Because while Job was in a hell-like condition, Jesus really experienced hell in all its fullness. And the most horrifying thing about hell is being abandoned, being alone, being forsaken and cast out by God while suffering his wrath. Jesus felt that abandonment and that, that, that uh, forsakenness on the cross by his father as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as he experienced the fullness of what Gehenna actually pointed to, a place where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. Job felt so alone in his suffering because no one else, not even his three friends, could reach him. It was like there was a gap between he and they. And yet Jesus has bridged the gap between you and God by descending into the depths of hell itself on the cross to bring you to God. The forsakenness that Jesus felt, however, 
was temporary. Because Jesus was truly righteous, he was not suffering for his sins, but for ours. And in a moment in time, he paid the price for sin so that all who believe in him would never have to fear what Job feared, being God-forsaken. That we would never have to fear being cast into Gehenna. Because of, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the believer, even in the midst of intense suffering, should never think that that suffering is a sign that God has forsaken you. Instead, the cross is a sign that you belong to God now and forever. And if you belong to God, that means he's your father. And if he's your father, it means that he is working all things, even your most painful sufferings together for the good of you, his beloved child that he has adopted into his family. Earlier I read from the weeping prophet Jeremiah who was despairing of his own life. But this same Jeremiah writes during the sack of Jerusalem. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Scripture says elsewhere that in our suffering... God equips and comforts us so that we can turn around and share that comfort with others who are suffering. If our suffering qualifies us to be comforters, how much more qualified is Christ, who has suffered more than any other man has? The prophet Isaiah identifies Christ as a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. He knows better than anyone how to comfort the suffering, which is why ultimately the solution to our pain is not to turn from him, but to turn to him. Him who experienced the fullness of grief and pain so that you and I would never have to be totally ever alone ever again. That we may be finally delivered from all of our sorrows in the age to come. There's likely a number of silent sufferers in this room this morning. And I think we ought to close this portion of our service by running to the one that we might be tempted to run from. And so as we go into prayer... I actually want us to have a, a brief moment of prayerful silence. I want us to, in our hearts before the Lord, share with Him our sorrows. I want us to be honest with Him about our doubts, our fears, even our anger, our disappointment with Him. Share with God your heart. Are you brokenhearted today? Cast yourself upon Him, the one whose mercies are new every morning. Do you feel crushed inside? What you need to know is that Jesus identifies with you. And the scripture says that this same Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So let's take a moment to silently pray, and then I will pray, and then we will, at last, sing a song that celebrates the Savior. Father in heaven, I pray that you would, in a way that I cannot, minister to the broken, to the needy, to the hurt, hurting, to the suffering this morning. 
pray that you would minister to those who feel God-forsaken. Father, remind us that for those of us who have received Christ, we are never God-forsaken because Christ was forsaken by God on our behalf, on the cross. Father, I pray that you would help us to not interpret the sufferings and the trials that we are going through as a sign that you are against us. You are not against your people. You are never against your people. And so, Father, I pray that instead of looking around with our eyes and what we can see and, and, and interpreting things in light of our experience, that you would help us to interpret things in light of the Word that tells the truth about who you are and your relationship to us as we are in Christ. As the Scripture says, if God be for us, who can be against us? If you have not spared your only Son, how will you not also give us all things? You who are near to the brokenhearted, you who save the crushed in spirit, you whose mercies are new every morning. Father, help us to say with Jeremiah, another sufferer, Help us to say with him, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.